We are a little ahead of schedule, which is good, because I'm not going to be particularly short today. I mean, not talking stature, I'll be as short as I was last week. Um, the, uh, but this is a very difficult passage. We are in Jeremiah, the end of Jeremiah 3, beginning of Jeremiah 4. And we'll be in Jeremiah through the summer uh, to the end of August. It was originally supposed to go through all of 2019, and I shortened it because Jeremiah is very cyclical, so I'm repeating a lot of stuff. And, uh, of course, that screwed up all the songs and the slides and everything else, so everybody's being very gracious to me um, for that. So I appreciate that. But uh, The other thing I would say before we get started is every now and then I... Uh, tell my students there's times when you have to counsel from the pulpit. Now, hopefully you don't do that all the time because it gets old. Um, But today is probably going to be one of those days where we do a little bit of that. Uh, So bear with me as the first part of this uh, is going to go into um, something of a uh, sort of a counseling session. So you can tell me afterwards whether you thought it was any effective uh, or not. Um, Also, I would ask that you would continue to pray uh, for my voice as I continue to fight uh, the coughs and allergies and asthma and all the stuff I'm fighting. Um, Lots of medicine. I'm very excited. Um, So, anyways, hopefully you've now had enough time to turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. And uh, it's interesting because about half of you now do that on an electronic device, so you can get there in about 10 seconds. Uh, But a number of you are still using uh, actual Bibles, um, and it takes longer to find it. And uh, particularly when you're in the Old Testament and passages people aren't as familiar with. So when you ever wonder why I have these sort of talking a little bit at the beginning, it's to give you time to get to the passage. Okay, very good. Jeremiah 3, starting at verse 19. As always, let's listen carefully, because this is God's word. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, And if you swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord, 
to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is a hard word. And yet it's a word that we need to hear. It's a word that we don't want to hear, that we don't like to hear. But we know that everything we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that helps us to turn from our idols, build our faith, lead us to repentance, because it is built on the word of the Lord. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak to us through your word this morning, and by the power of your spirit, help us see Jesus. His name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, a couple weeks ago, we went over one of the key verses found in the book of Jeremiah. I expect this verse will reappear many times over the next year, as we'll be in Jeremiah through August. And that verse is Jeremiah 2.13. It says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Of course, the broken cisterns refer to the great sin of Israel, the sin of idolatry. And here in Jeremiah, idolatry is usually placed in the context of spiritual adultery. And so I want to step back for a moment and see what idolatry actually looks like in our lives today. And so, as I said, this isn't going to be a normal introduction. It's going to take a little longer than usual, but then we'll dive into the text and see what kind of subtle consequences idolatry brings about in how we live our lives. And so we're going to look at a few people and their struggles first. And we're going to start with Tammy. Tammy is a pretty woman of 30, married with a child. Her husband loves her, and yet she has two problems. First, she doesn't think she's very attractive. She worries about her weight, and she's very insecure in relationships. And second, when she's had a rough day and is stressed out, she secretly binges on food, downing a whole half gallon of ice cream. And for a moment, she feels satisfied, and then her satisfaction turns to fear. And afraid of gaining weight, she runs to the bathroom and forces herself to throw up. Now, what would you say is at the root of Tammy's problems? Just telling Tammy that she's wrong or that she's sinning is not going to help. She knows she's sinning. Instead, she needs understanding the dynamics of her sin and the dynamics of Jesus' redemption so that she can really change. And then there's Marty. Marty's distraught and depressed. He finds that life is no longer worth living because his girlfriend dumped him. He's a Christian, but his girlfriend is not. And they've been living together for the last year. He knew it was wrong, but he refused to give it up. And now she's gone, and he's devastated. And when confronted about the fact that he, as a Christian, had no business living with her, and then unless she's a believer, he has no basis on which to marry her, he shrugs his shoulders and says, I know, and he's sorry. And yet he's been depressed about this for over a month. He hasn't eaten or slept well. She's all he can think about the great times they had, and all the good stuff they had in common. And he longs for her and can only 
proclaim how good she was, and he just doesn't understand why she left him. He sings her praises while feeling devastated by her treatment of him, and even though she may no longer be there, he still worships her. Dan and Susan are another case. Susan married Dan with the desire they build a life together, and she thought marriage would make her happy, and for a while it did. But after a few years, it became obvious to Susan that Dan's first love is his job. Dan's extreme attachment to his job converted his job into an idol for him. And Susan's extreme attachment to the idol of a certain kind of marriage converted marriage into an idol for her. Dan was looking for his job to give his life meaning, and Susan was looking to marriage to give her life meaning. Susan constantly complained to Dan about how he was spending too much time at work, and Dan justified that by saying he's doing it for her and the kids. You know, it's his way of loving the family. Susan didn't buy it. So what's going on here in all these, these three stories? Well, to understand them, first we have to understand the dynamics of idol worship. The dynamics of idol worship. See, sin is often uh, recognized accurately as disobedience and rebellion, yet it's also idolatry of the heart. Idolatry of the heart. And as such, it's binding and blinding and foolish. Idols are false gods that we attach ourselves to hoping to get something, desired favor, some sort of blessing or benefit. Now that phrase, idols of the heart, is actually a biblical phrase. It comes to us from Ezekiel chapter 14, where it's used a whole bunch of times. One verse, Ezekiel 14.3, Son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. And the prophet describes the people as having idols in their hearts. Now, this is very different because the Old Testament idols were usually wood and stone. And they were, you know, on the high places or in the homes. But Ezekiel says, now the real issue is inside. Our idols become sinful allies in our opposition to God. And our idols help us obtain what we want over against what God wants for us. You see the difference? Idols help us obtain what we want over and against what God wants for us. You see, Tammy is sinning not just by disobeying God with her vanity and lack of self-control, but by wanting two things more than she wants the grace of Christ. First, she wants attractiveness so everybody will notice her. And that works powerfully in her heart. And it robs her of the joy of delighting in Christ who is inherently more attractive in his glory and grace. Second, she wants comfort when she's stressed. I'm guessing that most of us want comfort when we're stressed. Maybe some of you don't. You can talk to me later. Um, But so much so that she'll binge eat rather than find satisfaction in the bread that Jesus offers to a hungry soul. She's not eating because she's hungry. She eats for the sensation of comfort that food brings. And Tammy's sinful habits are just an expression of idolatry. In a sense, the dynamics of idol worship are the same as true worship that we offer to the living God. We develop bonds with our idols, and we have plenty of them, through the dynamics of worship. We worship what we value. Or as Jesus would say, our hearts are where our treasure is. Whatever we treasure, we worship. 
So we give ourselves to what we worship. It's a response to what we value. And so we perceive the idol as valuable for certain reasons. And in Tammy's case, she values two things, an attractive appearance and comfort when stressed. And so we develop an attachment to what we want. We find the idol desirable for what it does for us. Tammy's not just making a judgment that it's valuable to be pretty. She desires, she longs to be pretty. It's something she deeply wants and for which she desperately longs. She's terrified of using, losing her youthfulness. And likewise, she's hurting from the pressure of life. She desires comfort. And at those moments, comfort becomes the treasured craving. And so Tammy has made choices and gave herself to the pursuit of achieving an attractive appearance. And she's become loyal to these two very different gods, trying to give them full allegiance. But if you notice, these are gods in opposition to each other. When the god of attractiveness says, you must lose weight, she did. But then she tried to cheat that god. And so when she's upset, the god of physical relief offered her the blessing of comfort if she devoured food. She believed this God's promise and sought out that comfort, but again, not for long. The other God's anger requires a sacrifice of atonement, and she complies by going to the bathroom and throwing up. Tammy's idols are competing gods, which powerfully bind her in a no-win situation. Nevertheless, she continues to be a slave to their required worship and obedience, and now she feels disappointed So how does that happen? How do we let ourselves get trapped in a cycle of idle disappointment? It's actually not hard when we realize we're all worshipers by nature. We worship with our mind, our desires, our wills, and our words. So let's look at three levels of idle worship. I told you this is going to be a little bit different beginning. There's a cycle to idle worship that's very subtle. We often don't even realize we're doing it until we're well down the path. John Calvin said very famously, the heart is an idle factory, and I think that's true. But how does that idle factory get started in our hearts? Well, I think it starts when we seek desired blessings from the object of our worship. So we could want good things, you know, wisdom, strength, um, uh, you know, even wealth. But we can add to that pleasures, reputation, gratification, being loved by another, It's whatever the idol can give us. The pleasure, recognition, success, we think we're going to benefit us. And so our worship would then focus on an idol object. The object is the means to the blessing. In Dan's case, he wanted success, a good reputation, and money. And the job was the means to those desired ends. Susan wanted to be loved and have security. And her marriage to Dan was a means to those desired ends. Idle objects can be any number of things, including things that are in and of themselves good. Health, house, hobby, spouse, children, career. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But it can also encompass things that are bad or are wrong. An affair, drugs, cheating on a test, shady business deals. And so we ultimately are using these things as a means to an end, to get certain benefits or blessings or desired outcome that we really, 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 really want. 
But ultimately, we're promoting ourself with our idol worship. Ultimately, idol worship is all about me. It's not about the idol. We want to secure our own kingdom in righteousness. And we become self-seeking and self-trusting and self-reliant. And I want to be valued and I want to be praised and I want people to envy me. And we commit ourselves to the object, number two, for its benefit, number one, And yet we, who are the idol makers, are the actual idols. Self-worship is what fuels our idolatry. We're creating idols in our own image. Because ultimately, my worship of that idol is to get for me. And idol worship makes it all about me. Now, one of the proofs that this is true is our reaction to any threat against our idol. If we think that blessing's not going to come to us, we get angry and depressed and bitter and filled with self-pity and disappointment. Marty's depression is the result of his idle object, the girlfriend, leaving him. Dan's anger towards Susan is because he saw her complaints as spoiling his success and his accomplishments from work. And in idol worship, we want to And we want to possess wisdom so that we'll be seen as wise, not so that we'll be wise, but so that people will think we're wise. You know, we want to possess strength so people will consider us strong. We want um, to be rich so people will think we're, you know, self-sufficient and self-reliant. But by means of idol worship, we're living for ourselves and our own pleasure. And Jeremiah says there's a great big huge problem with that. Idols are leaking cisterns. And that's the point of Jeremiah 2.13. The Lord rebukes the Israelites for these two great sins. They have forsaken the Lord, who is the fountain of living water. And they dug their own cisterns, which are broken and leaking and can't hold water. And the Israelites keep going back to these broken and, and, and leaking cisterns. Now, our idols may work for us for a little while, but often they have a slow leak, and eventually they'll become empty, and yet they'll still maintain a hold over us. They'll work for a time, but eventually they'll curse us, and they'll hold us in sinful bondage. And the Lord is chastising his people for their pursuit of idols and reminding them that idols are ultimately completely ineffective. They may give you pleasure for a short time, but they're going to run out and give you nothing. In Dan's case, he resented Susan's complaining. It spoiled the pleasure he got from his job. And yet other other issues have started to come up that make it hard for him to enjoy, enjoy his job. There's conflict with other workers. His boss is criticizing him. The job's no longer such a good thing. He's disappointed, and his cistern is leaking. Susan's disappointment with her husband is growing every day. The relationship they had in the early years was gone. In fact, as she thought about their marriage, it became clear she's the one who really wanted the relationship. She's the one who'd done all the giving. And yet Susan had done all the giving in order to get. She had given in order to get the kind of marriage she wanted and for which she had dreamed. And the marriage cistern is now leaking. And she's getting more disappointed every day. So that's sort of a crash course on how idol worship works 
and how it always leads us to a place of profound disappointment. And Jeremiah shows us now what that disappointment looks like, except he's going to show it to us from God's perspective. So we start in verse 19. Finally got to the text. And we're going to look at the disappointment of God. The disappointment of God, verses 19 and 20. This is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So let's look at things from God's point of view for a moment. I put in the footnotes that there's a great book called Disappointment with God. It's been around for a while. I don't know, it's like 15, 20 years old. But it's very good. But I think if God wanted to write a book about us, he'd call it Disappointment with People. And, uh, you know, you go back to verse 19. You know, he's saying, you can almost hear the longing in his voice. How I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. And I thought you would call me my father, and you would not turn from following me. And that's the way God wanted things to be. He wanted to treat his people like sons and daughters. He wanted to love them with a father's love and delight in them with a father's delight. He wanted to give them every good thing. He wanted to plant them in a beautiful garden. Sorry, I'm overheating a little. He wanted to give his children a legacy beyond any inheritance that any earthly father could imagine. It's the way God has wanted things from the beginning. He planted Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. He wanted them to live in that garden as his loyal sons, his loving daughters. It's the way God intended things for his children And he says he wants to treat them uh, like sons. In fact, he did treat them like sons, and he gave them a desirable land and a heritage. And all he wanted them uh, in return was their love. He wanted them to call him my father and really mean it. And that's the way God wanted to be, but that's not the way it turned out. Listen to this lament again in verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel declares the Lord. And these words are starting to become familiar. The last two chapters have been filled with imagery of spiritual adultery. God's people are supposed to be devoted to him like a bride to a husband, but they've been fooling around and acting like prostitutes. And these verses uh, not only reinforce that, but they also show us, very interesting, the relationship between God and his people is far too rich to be defined by any single human relationship. So now he compares them to wayward sons who are unworthy of their inheritance. So not only is God a a betrayed husband, he's also a disappointed father. God's disappointment should bring grief to all of his sons and daughters. I mean, if you had a good father, and I know not everybody did, but if you did, you know that a father's disappointment brings greater shame than a father's anger. If a father says, I'm disappointed in you, that cuts to the heart in a way that I'm angry with you never can. Well, the same is true for our relationship with God. 
God is always our great father, but we're not always his true sons and daughters. And that breaks his heart and brings upon us the disappointment of God. But Jeremiah is not done because not only is God disappointed in us, we end up disappointed with ourselves, which demonstrates the disappointment of sin. The disappointment of sin. That's the second blank there, starting at verse 21. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. And now you hear their response. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Sin makes life bitter. It is a bitter thing for a child to be torn away from his or her father. And it is a bitter thing to bring disappointment to God's heart. And Jeremiah describes it, look again at verse 21, a voice on the bare heights is heard. The weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Now, to be honest, it's hard to know what to make of this verse. This is actually a challenging verse to interpret. Some think it's the beginning of Israel's repentance, and they could be right. Sorrow is often attached to repentance. But in spiritual life, the sinner retraces his steps to where he sinned and then seeks forgiveness and restoration with God. And here we're told they're going back to the high places. These are the places of idolatry. This is the place where they went and committed most of their sins. And uh, maybe they've gone back there to confess their sins. But their cries may not be cries of repentance at all. The real prayer of repentance seems to begin at the end of verse 22, after God has promised to heal their faithlessness. And I just think there's something suspicious about God's people still standing up on the bare heights, the place of idolatry. You know, if they really wanted to repent for their sins, they would come down from that place and go to the temple to meet with God. So it's, it's a little fishy. You're not quite sure what's going on here. And the reason they're weeping and pleading is they've perverted their ways and forgotten God. Now, that could mean they've recognized their sin as sin and they're sorry for it. It could also mean that, you know, they got caught and the sin is making them bitter. The kind of disappointment that comes from not following God. In that case, they're not shedding the sweet tears of repentance, but the salty tears of bitterness. You know, think about parenting. A number of your parents, the kids will know this too, may not admit it, uh, Parents quickly learn to recognize the difference between these two different types of crying. It's one thing to shed tears because the consequences of sin are painful. It is a much different thing to cry over the disobedience itself. And sometimes we cry because we did something wrong and we know it. And sometimes we cry because mom and dad know it. And that's a, that's a whole different thing. And I think it's the same for these folks here. 
no matter how you understand that verse, it shows the despair of a godless society. In the phenomenal lectures that were put into a book called The Death in the City, Francis Schaeffer wrote and spoke of the book of Jeremiah. And he concluded that the Christian culture of Jeremiah's day had disintegrated into a post-Christian culture. That all sounds very current. And that's what this verse is about. A culture's forgotten God and is discovering that life can be pretty bitter without God. So Jeremiah is not just a book about what happened to Judah, uh, you know, several thousand years ago. It's a book about what happens to anyone who abandons God, who forgets God. Many people hear that same cry welling up from somewhere deep within. It's a cry from the bare heights, the weeping and pleading of people who've perverted their ways and forgotten God. And cries of despair and abandonment don't go unheard. God's not deaf to the weeping and pleading of his people, nor is he silent. Jeremiah is actually full of divine speech. Four times in this passage, God invites his people to come home. Four times. We should underscore these invitations. As we listen to everything Jeremiah has to say about sin and judgment and As we go through this book, you'll be asking yourself, where's the grace? And that's understandable. It's a hard book. But when the grace of God comes in, it shines like a lighthouse on a stormy night. God's grace is inviting. Jeremiah 3.12, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. 3.14, return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master, I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will bring you home. 322, return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Jeremiah 4.1, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord to me, you should return. And the message is starting to get through, even though you've been unfaithful to God. Like a cheating wife or a prodigal son, God loves you and wants you to come home. And if God gave gracious invitations in Jeremiah's day, he gives them even more in our own day because now he's given us Jesus. The gospel is full of the invitations of grace. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, one of my favorite verses. I have a lot of favorite verses. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 22, come to the wedding feast. Matthew 25, enter into the joy of your master. Of course, at the end of the book, Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price, which you can only get from the fountain of living waters. The grace of God is present in the divine call to salvation, the invitation to come home. God is the father in the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. How will you respond to God's invitation? The best answer is the one Israel gave. End of verse 22. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. That verse should have an exclamation point on the end of it. Because the answer is not maybe. Let me sleep on it. I need to pray about it. 
Can I talk it over with a few people? When God goes out and finds his people in the desert selling themselves to false idols and invites them to come home, they say yes. Falling back in love with God includes repenting for sin. Repentance is not something we do so that God will let us come home. It's what going home is all about. And the prayer Israel offers is actually a great prayer of repentance. Again, starting at the end of verse 22, Behold, we come to you for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all, for which our fathers labor, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. So the first thing is, and I think I put these notes in here, the prayer recognizes God, who God is. True repentance begins with a confession that God is God. Admitting that God is God may seem kind of obvious, but that's Israel's whole problem. It's the same basic problem that every unbeliever has, worshiping everything but God. Notice that phrase, the Lord our God. It's repeated four times in these verses. You know, repetition is always a clue to what's important when you're reading the Bible. When they say the same thing over and over again, that's a clue that we should pay attention. And the Lord our God, four times, the entire prayer is uttered with a sense of the majesty, holiness, and righteousness of God. It's offered to the Lord God Almighty, the great I Am. True repentance testifies that the Lord is God. At the same time, recognizing who God is means speaking to him in personal terms. It says the Lord our God, the God with whom we have a relationship God's people speak to him as their own God. They belong to him. He belongs to them. Confession restores the intimacy of a love relationship. Remember, redemption is a romance. And another part of recognizing who God is, recognizes uh, that he's the Lord of salvation. God's people confess he's the salvation of Israel. True repentance looks for salvation from God alone. It requires true faith in the true God. The only God it makes sense to repent to is a God who can actually save you. The New Testament reveals that salvation comes through God's Son, Jesus, who says, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. True repentance testifies salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in no one else. Second, repentance recognizes how sinful sin is. You know, once we're squared away on who God is, we need to come clean about what we've done to offend him. Israel's prayer of confession offers full disclosure of sin. God's people admit that their worship's been false. All the worship up on the high hills, the high places, the bare heights has been just noise. True repentance renounces any attempt to save ourselves. When we come to God, we renounce anything and everything else that we've trusted to bring us joy and meaning in life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, God's people confess how costly that sin has been. Excuse me, false idols are harsh taskmasters. They always damage the people who worship them. So in this case, verse 24, 
The shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Idol worship has consumed their flocks and herds. Worse yet, it's consumed their sons and daughters. That's hard stuff. But God's people are guilty at this time of child sacrifice. Some of the gods they worship demanded the lives of their children and they were willing to offer them. One of my favorite professors, the guy now retired, godly man named Gary Pratico, and he taught me Old Testament, but he was actually a biblical archaeologist by profession. And he told a story of doing a dig in Israel. And, you know, they, they do a big dig and it's really complex and they have to be incredibly careful. He uncovered something called the Tophet. It's a burial plot. And they dug away and it was filled with hundreds of urns. And they took out one of the urns and dusted it off and they're very careful as archaeologists. And inside were the burned bones of small children. And he said he sat on the edge of this trench, holding this urn in his hand, and just wept and wept. He said he could not stop crying. He was just wailing because in front of him in this trench are hundreds of these urns. And he knows what's in every one of them is what's in the one he's holding in his hands. True story. It tells you they, even though they were guilty of idol worship, they took it very, very seriously. Israel sacrificed thousands of children. There is a modern parallel. And I won't go in there today, but you need to know there is a modern parallel. We will learn the sad details of all this when we get to Jeremiah's sermon in chapter 7 called the Valley of Slaughter. Little wonder the people of Israel are utterly humiliated by their sin. It says, let us lie down in our shame. Confessing the sinfulness of sin means confessing that we've lived our life in disobedience to God. We've sinned against the Lord. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day. Fourth, true repentance extends corporately to corporate sins. Notice how the children of Israel repent not just for their own sin, but for the sins of their fathers. They say, we and our fathers. We're reminded by these words that the sinfulness of sin extends to the sins of our nation, our race, our denomination, our church, our family, not only in the present, but also in the past. And we learn from all this that the healing of our faithlessness demands radical repentance that even goes down to our historical roots. I have a good friend, uh, Sean Michael Lucas, pastors in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and he wrote the definitive history of the PCA. But he points out the sins of our denomination as well. And a lot of people weren't really looking for that out of the history book, you know, of our denomination. They wanted the highlights. They wanted to say, hey, you know, here's all the stuff we did good. We did a lot of things good, upheld the authority of the scriptures and all that. But he said there were some things we did bad. We had some people that we allowed in part of that who were racist, and we shouldn't have done it. 
And a lot of people had to say, yeah, you're right. We did that. We shouldn't have done it. To return to God is to bring out the blackest sins into the light of his glorious presence and to admit that we've said, done, and and thought evil things both now and in the past. Repentance isn't easy. It's hard. And I know we can come in on Sunday and we can read the words of repentance, and I love those. And I think for a lot of us, that may be the only time we repent all week. And I, I truly love those because I desperately need them. But it's really hard. Confession teaches us, though, if God's willing to forgive these people and all they have done in their treachery and betrayal and even in their sacrifice, God can forgive even the worst sins. His invitation to return to him is given to everyone, even these people who've murdered their own children. And yet as comprehensive as Israel's confession is, it's not enough. It's inadequate. Because while the prayer is great, the follow-through fell through. And we see the disappointment of change starting at chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord to me, you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, the nation shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So as comprehensive as that prayer was, and it was a great prayer, it's inadequate. It did recognize the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin, but it wasn't true repentance. Why not? Because it was really a good prayer. Because repentance requires more than prayer. It requires more than lip service. It requires more than words. True repentance has to give something. It has to be repentance in deed as well as in word. Now God's heard Israel's prayer, but he's heard it all before. And sometimes it's been a sham. You don't have to go back very many verses to verse 10. He says, and yet for all her treacherous Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And so now he's warning his people, it's time to follow through. You said the right things. You prayed the right things. And so he gives them some advice on spiritual agriculture. Verse 3, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. I was thinking about that. Most Christians are content with the size of our present obedience. And that obedience may be like a hanging basket or maybe a window box or a small garden plot out in the yard. But God wants his people to break new ground in their obedience. In other words, God wants you to do more than just tend the little garden uh, that you keep planting every year. It's time for real farming It's time to put away the shovel and get the John Deere out of the barn. Hitch up the plow, go out in the fields and break up the rocky soil of your heart. I know a lot of you are farmers. I always worry about doing agricultural things here. 
you know. But God says what's true for the farmer is true for our spiritual life. Don't sow obedience to Christ among the thorns of Satan. The reason we're sometimes weak and ineffective in the Christian life is we're trying to plant the flowers of heaven in the same pot as the weeds of the world. And it's not so much that we're against Christ as we want to follow Jesus in the world at the same time. We discover that doesn't work so well. And the Lord's asking for deep repentance, a much deeper repentance than we're used to giving. A true repentance that gets to the root of sin and digs it out. He wants more than just prayers. He wants deeds of repentance. And he says here he wants more than just circumcised Israelites. He wants circumcised hearts. And to make the parallel, he wants more than just baptized Christians. He wants baptized lives. Then what? What will happen if God's people meet all the conditions of true repentance? Well, we're told, end of verse 2, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Shows the vital importance of repentance. Nothing less than the sharing of the gospel depends on it. The church's effectiveness in outreach and evangelism and world missions and local missions and mercy ministry and learning how to love your neighbor is directly tied to the sincerity of our repentance. That's all well and good. How does it work out in real life? Well, for that, we need to go back where we started and see the antidote to idol worship. Because the only solution for Tammy and Marty and Dan and Susan is to begin to truly worship God through the power of the gospel. They have to return to the fountain of living water and freely drink. Genuine worship is delighting in God. God's the goal. A relationship with him is what we value as he alone is worthy. True worship is in our delight in God as God, not in what he's going to do for us. So Dan and Susan got help and they repented of their respective idolatry. Susan came to see that her only encouragement was found in Christ. Dan could never make her happy. In fact, the only way she could legitimately view Dan was in terms of how she could minister to him and thus honor God. And she came to terms with her idolatry and began to believe the gospel. And her encouragement was found in her union with Christ. No matter how many hours Dan worked, Susan believed in the partnership that she had with the Holy Spirit. And so she was freed from Dan as her idol object so she can now love and minister to Dan as her husband. Dan, too, is convicted of his sin. He looked to success in the business world to give him contentment, and in so doing, he neglected his wife. He confessed he loved his job more than he loved Susan. And yet his job was something he used to get other treasures, success, reputation, and money. And he was broken over his sin, not just against Susan, but against God, and began to see that only Christ could give him true contentment. To raise his job above Jesus was offensive to his Lord. And as treasure began to change, he took steps away from his idol and cut back on work and got involved in a small group at church. The gospel is God's offer of amnesty to idolaters and of restoration to himself as the living and true God, the fountain of living water. The condition is our surrender to Christ as Savior and Lord. We enter into this relationship as forgiven people with a new record of righteousness as true sons and daughters. It's the righteousness of Christ given to us. Susan and Dan quickly learned that though they were free from the idol, their idols, their idols are never far away. 
And there's always new ones ready to take place in their heart. And so they learn that repentance is continually necessary for God's children because we still believe that the lie that broken cisterns are valuable. True repentance means I have to have a change of mind about what's valuable. I have to turn from seeking the blessings of the idol, whether that's looks or happiness or comfort, and I got to hear heavy doses of the truth, coupled with sincere prayer for grace to see the vanity and the temptations of the idols. And so by faith, I value my growing understanding and knowledge of the true God. You know, one of our theme verses for this church is 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I love that verse because it applies to everybody. Doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for, you know, two days, two years, or 50 years. You still want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, Tammy has made some modest gains, but the pull of her idols remains unbroken. And while she was tired of that vice-like grip of her competing gods in her heart, she still sought the promises of satisfaction and attractiveness. And as long as these longings ruled in her heart, she can't get the help that only Jesus can give. Jesus isn't going to offer her cheap comfort or physical beauty. He offers her himself. And having Jesus on his terms And desiring him had to become more valuable and more desirable to her than being attractive or thin. Drinking from the fountain of living water had to become more satisfying than sucking the mud from the leaking cistern of comfort food. For real change to occur, Tammy needs to repent on this level of idol worship. Second, I have to turn away from self. I said that idol worship is really all about me. It's not so much actually about the idol. I have to turn from self-control, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. I repent of my demanding my own way and brooding over not getting my way and of my desire to promote myself. I remember my idols are in opposition to the living God. They promise me goods that support my self-rule and resisting them is what dying to self and crucifying the flesh and conforming to Christ's death is all about. Marty wanted to be free from depression. What can I do, he asked, to be happy again? When given the answer that he repent and believe the gospel and believe on Christ and his grace, he says, I don't know how to do that. When told that repentance means he has to change his mind about the value this girl had in his life and he has to give her up and flee to Christ, again, he says, I don't know how to do that. When asked if he believed that Uh, When he died, if he would have a place in God's kingdom, he said, he's a sure, he's a believer. He accepted Christ at Majnik when he was 16. And yet when it was pointed out that he didn't treasure God's grace offered to him in Christ, but in fact he treasures this girl far above Jesus, he didn't understand. Isn't faith simply believing that Jesus died for my sins? And when Marty was told that faith is not only trusting in Christ, but also treasuring Christ, he got really uncomfortable because he admitted if that girl came back, he'd be really happy. Sin goes much deeper than just attitudes like disappointment or behavior like ignoring your spouse. And it's true that attitudes and behaviors have to change and reflect godliness, and yet they arise from a heart that wants to remain in control and be be independent, which amounts to pride, 
looks to the things of this life, like job, marriage, and appearance, to make life meaningful and happy, which is actually unbelief. Ultimately, what we want and that which we worship has to change. And sometimes what our idols are is really clear to us, and we know. And some of you sit here and you know exactly what your idols are. But other times, we're barely sensitive to the presence of sinful passions, or we have lives marked by anxiety, anger, bitterness, depression, or fear. We've experienced all of those. And we may not be so clear on the cause, but more likely, it's some idolatrous view of life that needs to change. And we need to identify and locate our idols. And the good news is that through Christ, we can repent and no longer worship those idols. And one last thought. I know this has been a really heavy uh, message today. God loves idolaters. God loves idolaters. He sent his son to die for idolaters. Jesus receives idolaters. So what do idolaters like us need to do? We need to trust in Jesus. We need to do nothing else but flee to Jesus. Perhaps someone will say, you know, I, I did that, but my idol's back and I'm worshiping again. How do I get back to Jesus? Well, repentance is the flip side of faith. Faith and repentance are always working together. And we need to repent. It's not a prerequisite for coming to Jesus. It's how we come to Jesus. Faith and repentance is how we come. You don't have to do that before. It's not like, well, if you don't do that, you're not allowed. It's the process of coming. Repentant faith and faith-filled repentance continue to be necessary for us. Our idols will seek our worship again and again. They are not going to give up. And so we have to flee to Jesus again and again. And we can't give up. Technically, we call that the perseverance of the saints. So how do we break the power of idolatry? By going to the cross of Christ and nowhere else. He was killed for what we deserve as idolaters. And change only occurs when we come to Christ and believe the gospel. The attraction of our idols are unmasked for what they really are. And Jesus removes the lie and opens our eyes to see what treasure is inherently valuable. And lives of growing obedience, purpose, and love are built on the foundation of coming to Jesus and trusting Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, our eyes are open to the lies of our idols. And we can stay close to the one who alone is the rightful object of all our worship and all our praise. Think about that. Take a moment to pray. And uh, then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son, through your Spirit and your Word. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess with shame how easily we turn aside from your Word, thinking we know it in some superficial way but we really haven't absorbed its lessons deep into our lives. Forgive us of our sins. Open our eyes to the disappointment of idol worship. 
Bring us to that place of true repentance that brings us home to you because you are the Lord our God. We hear your exhortation to return to me and I will heal your faithlessness. We pray that in the quietness of our hearts now, your spirit will so work within us that we too will cry heavenward, I do return, Jesus. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So heal us and heal our land and make us faithful in our small corners, as faithful as pardoned sinners can be the side of heaven. And so we pray that wherever we found ourselves in this sermon, we come to that place where we want to return to you. We pray we might give your Holy Spirit freedom to work in our lives this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees, as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith and repentance and renewed confidence in your word and ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through these things, draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.